This is NPR's Planet Money Podcast. I'm Adam Davidson here with Laura Conaway. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm okay, I think. We're giving the time and date um, this week. It is uh, Thursday, September 25th at 2.14 p.m. The latest big piece of news that went across the wires about 26 minutes ago is that it looks like the Democrats and Republicans, the Senate and the House, the Congress and the White House have reached at least an agreement in principle on a bailout package. Um, $700 billion. $700 billion. Presumably by the time you hear this, you will know more, frankly, than we know right now. So we will leave it at that. We've gotten a lot of questions and we want more. We really find it very helpful to know what you are curious about, what you're puzzled about, what you're upset about. Planet Money at NPR.org. You can also find us at Twitter.com slash Planet Money. That's us. Or NPR.org slash money. You're going to find us. Andre wants to know, why is it that AIG, Lehman Brothers, Freddie Mac, and Fannie Mae, and so many investment banks are all experiencing bankruptcy or financial turmoil at the same time? Something smells fishy to me. So, look, Andre, there is something fishy. What's fishy is there is less money in the world. That is what has happened. Uh, the, the Between 2002 and 2007, there's what most people now call a housing bubble. There was a huge explosion in credit being given out. Home values were going up, which fed a whole virtuous cycle, it's called, of, of, of increased returns for banks and investment banks and insurance companies, which meant it basically the global economy was pumped up to many more trillions of dollars than it was before. Uh, between 2000 and 2007, the global economy doubled in size. I mean, it's massive what happened. And now we are watching that giant balloon deflate a bit. We're, we're nowhere near where we were in 2000, but we have lost trillions of dollars in the world economy. That is affecting every institution, every business, every bank in the world, but it's affecting some more than others. So the places you mentioned, they are all interrelated and, and the impact of one impacts the other, but basically they are all victims, also causes of the crisis we're in. So um, it sounds like an ebbing tide sinks all boats, the big ones, faster. Yeah, or the shaky ones faster or the ones that are, you know, balancing on a log. I'm trying to think of some yeah. ship analogy for high leverage. All but. right, here we go. Everett. Everett is bang on this business about executive pay. It seems that we now have some kind of an agreement to curb executive pay for banks that take advantage of the bailout. Everett wants to know, you mentioned, we mentioned in a past podcast, worried that Rather than stay at the banks and correct their mistakes, some executives would leave to pursue other higher-paying positions with different companies. I know these are not all bad people, but who would have them? Additionally, what would they be able to negotiate their salary with? They can't say, if you don't pay me what I want, then I'll stay where I'm at. The job market is a market like any other. It's supply and demand. If you are one of a handful of people who know how to run a huge, large corporation, then you are part of a very small group of people. I don't know that it's a good thing to have on your resume that you ran a major bank that collapsed, but I do think that a lot of these people are, are, are very smart, very capable, and there will be many companies that want them and possibly far more companies that want them than there are available CEOs. And just one thing I want to mention, I mean, people talk about greed yeah, it's greed. I mean, that, but it's self-interest. Let's call it, that's what Adam Smith talked about, self-interest. 
Sure, it would be great if people generally thought, you know, I'm going to take less money and serve the common good. That doesn't seem to conform to the experience of, of most of humanity. More science from Sarah. I've heard this kind of question a lot. If this fiscal disaster is a reverse pyramid where you have this narrow base of faulty mortgages holding up all these credit swaps all over the place, what if you just stabilize the base? She says, give 5 million homeowners who are having trouble on their mortgages $50,000 each to buy some time and refinance. Is this pie in the sky? What are we talking about here? I mean, I don't know that that is the exact solution that that – that that, I, that that seems to make the most sense um, for a variety of reasons. I mean, first of all, an awful lot of the homeowners foreclosing are, you know, these were speculators. These were people who made irresponsible decisions. Of course, many of the banks that are, you know, that will benefit from this bailout also made irresponsible decisions. Either way is very upsetting. But but just giving 50000 I mean, it starts becoming a very weird thing. Do you give it to everybody? Do you give it only to the people who are struggling, but aren't those the people who took the biggest risks? So why are the people who didn't take risks not benefiting? I hate to say it, but it sounds a lot like the bailout itself, where they're choosing which investment firms are going to get the bad assets wiped off their, their books and which aren't. Right. And we don't know how they're going to do that, but that's true. There's going to be very powerful questions no matter what you do. There are some solutions that seem, at, at least at first glance, to provide um, levels of equity that are, that, are, that are higher than the current bailout plan or than that one, I would think. For example, I mean, there's one simple idea, which is just cut, cut the caps on that mutual fund 401k investing. Just go ahead and um, the, the government coming out and saying for the next year, you can put as much as you want into mutual funds and savings accounts, and we will never tax that money ever. That like, a Roth IRA is basically what that was called, an uncapped Roth IRA, to encourage us all to save a lot more money, which would be healthy for us, healthy for the system, and it would provide that liquidity, that precious liquidity, that money moving through the system, the credit available for people to lend out. That's one idea that, frankly, I, I would love that. Um, and then it allows the market to sort of punish the people who who made risky decisions, both the homeowners and the big banks. Another idea is the government just buys the homes in foreclosure, just pays for them. Um, and then uh, and then rents them out to the owners. It seems like a very complicated plan. And I think what Bernanke and Paulson both said is we need speed. We don't have time for the perfect complicated solution. Danny has a question. I think it has to do with the idea of oversight. The $700 billion bailout comes with a lot of power for the Secretary of the Treasury to go ahead and, and buy what he likes to buy not buy what he doesn't like to buy. Danny asks, won't the new president choose his own cabinet, which will include the Secretary of Treasury? Yeah, of course. I mean, this this is the issue. And this is what Congress, both Democrats and Republicans, fought against and said, this we're not giving this much power to Henry Paulson, and we're not giving this much power to someone we don't even know who it is. We don't even know which president will appoint this person. Um, I'm going to have to, you know, we we haven't seen the current bill. We're going to, you know, we're told it involves a lot more oversight and a lot more transparency. We're going to have to see that, and 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 you know, we and many others will be evaluating that. Um, there's an argument that the Democratic plan actually, in ways, gives more power than the White House plan does to the Treasury official. But yes, I mean, we had the other day the the uh, Professor John Macy from Yale saying this is the single largest transfer of power from the legislative branch to the executive branch in U.S. history. Those are powerful, powerful comments. Where did all the money go that Wall Street firms made during the housing boom? That's from Thomas. It's gone. There's less money in the world. That is such a weird idea to me. I know. I don't... 
I mean, I Poof. guess I've been covering economics too long because it doesn't seem that weird to me. I mean, you know, your house is worth a hundred grand. You buy it at a hundred grand. Then a few years later, your neighbor sells an identical house for two hundred grand. So you think to yourself, "Hey, my house is worth two hundred grand." Now, no one gave you a hundred. Yeah, there's no actual dollars. What you're no talking about is value. Is value, but it's denominated in dollars. And then a year later, there's I don't know your neighborhood goes through a really bad spell and there's a lot of crime and your house is back to $80, $80,000. is down to $80,000. No one burned a pile of money that represents the difference, right. just the value. But there's only down. a small amount of actual money. I mean, a very small amount of actual money undergirds the whole system. Dollar bills. You dollar mean. bills, yeah. yeah. And the dollar bills, you know, there, there's what economists call the velocity of money. If I, if I have five bucks and I give it to you for doing, you know, you get, sell me this bell here for five bucks. Yeah. And then I give you that five bucks, and then you give it to our friend Annie for a sandwich that she made, and then Annie gives it, you know, to someone else. We have added twenty dollars to the to the economy with the same five dollar bill. Actually, our colleague David Kessenbaum suggested that he and I just stand in a corner of the office with a thousand dollars and just hand it back and forth to each other all day. Increase and, the velocity <laughs> increase, of increase money. Increase the velocity of all money. All right. So there's less money. It's that simple. It's a hard concept to grasp, but there is less money. But some money. of these people got rich. What do you mean there's less money? Yes, some of this money are, went somewhere. There's There are winners, but if you add up the winners and you add up the losers, the net result is the, a lot more losers and a lot more losing. There is trillions of dollars. I mean, $20 trillion, I mean, Every home in America, basically, or many homes in America, are worth considerably less than they were two years ago. There's less credit card lines. There's less people buying stuff. There is less money in the world today. But the money that the Wall Street firms made, those dollars, some of those dollars are in people's bank accounts or boats or fancy houses. Well, yes. I mean, some people made money along the way, but the the banks are worth a lot less, tens of billions of dollars less today, and that money did not go somewhere. There's not a fixed amount of money. There is a – usually there's more money every day than there was the day before, and there's more every year than there was the year before. And I know, Laura, you and I are planning some special shows on what is money, and we'll get into all this then because it's very complicated, um, and I might not be doing the greatest job of explaining it. But – there is generally more money every year than the year before. There's not a fixed amount. It's not that there's a million dollars and we just split, you know, and sometimes the rich grab it. The economy generally grows. But every now and then during recessions and other crises, we go through a period where there's less money. And that's what we are going through now. I think you're holding up very well here, Adam, actually. You're doing a great <laughs> job. Lynn wants to know. Could you explain what might happen to normal people if the, quote, financial system collapses? Are we really destined to become one of those hollow-eyed people in pictures from the Great Depression? Or is the effect more likely to be something dire, like my credit card limits going down? All right. It's somewhere in between those two. Let me say that. It's, you know, the general image I get is like late 70s U.S. malaise, maybe a little worse than that. Not quite Great Depression bad. I mean, here, here's the scary— We still had disco then. We had disco. We had, you know. There's pleasure in life then. I, I, those are my favorite years of school. I went to PS3 in the village. I loved it. Um, the 
the the nightmare scenario that people started talking about a while ago and that last week we thought we actually saw on Wednesday and Thursday and on all things considered on this Friday, Alex Bloomberg and I are doing a special story and then we're going to expand it from This American Life. Next week we're doing another NPR, This American Life collaboration, is about what happened the day the economy almost died. What would happen, the nightmare scenario is the seizing up of credit markets. People, banks don't lend money to other banks. Banks don't lend money to other businesses. Virtually no business in America can survive very long without access to credit, access to a line of credit from the bank. Even if you're a really healthy, growing company, maybe you bought a few cars this week or you bought that, you know, you you painted your your front door or you did something that cost you a little more money than you had on hand no big deal you borrowed it from you borrowed a line of credit from the bank and you paid your employees with it every business does this all the time they float in and out of being cash flow positive and cash flow negative as the accountants would call it if there was no lending if there's no available lending people don't get paid People don't buy cars. People don't paint the front of their houses. Whatever you do for a living, whoever pays you to do that doesn't have the money to do it. And whoever pays them so that they might have the money to do it next week won't pay them. It's unimaginable because it's that aspect of it did not happen in the Great Depression in, in this scenario that we're describing because we have a very different financial system. No one quite knows what would happen. We just, I mean, the language I hear is econ the economy would cease for a period of time. And we don't know, we don't know what happens, you know. It, it, it's, it's scary. There are many economists who say that's likely to have happened. There are many responsible economists who say, nah, it really, it'll sort itself out sooner than you'd think. And it's, there is no reason to panic. And I also would say a huge difference between the Great Depression and now. Well, there's two huge differences. One is FDIC insurance. I mean, we all have most of our money insured by the FDIC, hopefully. Two is the government is on this. Maybe there's lots of quibbles about what they're doing and they might be spending more money than they need or less money than they need. They might be doing it in a wrong way. But the Great Depression, I mean, you had four years from 1929 to 1933 where the government is just not doing anything and things are getting worse and worse and worse. That is not the case here. So those things make me feel like there's it's not time to panic. Adam, thank you. Thank you, Laura. You've been listening to NPR's Planet Money podcast. We have many more podcast episodes. We also have our lovely blog written by Laura and Dan and sometimes me at npr.org slash money. I'm Adam Davidson with Laura Conaway. Please tune in tomorrow.